Hello and welcome to another Comedian's Interview for my blog and podcast, A Rich Comic Life. My blog describes my experiences of watching over 800 comedians and counting over the last 46 years. My name is Richard Gill and my guest today is the incredible comedian, Mr. Nick Helm. Yes! <laughs> Hello, mate. How are you? Hello. Hello, Richard. Um, I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right, mate. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking. My absolute uh, pleasure. Classically, thank you for rescheduling. <laughs> uh, yes, we had to, didn't we? but that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, it's great. We're going to do an interview. It's going to be about 45 minutes to an hour, and mm -hmm. it's going to be all about your comic career. So I'd like to start off by saying, of course, you are one of my favourite comedians. How did you become a comedian in the first place? <laughs> um, oh well um, before I answer that I would say that you are most comedians favourite audience member so <laughs> not mine but a lot of comedians <laughs> of course that was expected <laughs> <laughs> um, how did I get started as a comedian um, I uh, was always very interested in comedy um, I think some of my earliest memories are uh, are from comedy. Uh, I remember my dad. I, I used to live in London, uh, and then I moved with my family to St Albans, and then I lived in a few other places when I was when I graduated university, and then I moved back to London. I actually don't live very far from where I grew up. Right now, uh, and I remember when. I lived in London, so I must have been very young. Oh, wow. I must have been under eight years old. And I remember my dad used to read to me in bed and um, he would fall asleep and I would climb over him and I would go, we lived in like a three-story house and uh, it was like this very old um, sort of, like a, a, I guess it was like a Victorian house or maybe it was an Edwardian house, but it's like this three-story house that didn't cost very much then. <laughs> and now and now I just look, my parents sold it to move to St Albans and now you look at it and you just think there's no chance that I'll ever be able to afford a place. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, they took it for granted. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but I, I, I remember I climbed over him and then I walked you know, down all the stairs and then I'd sit and watch either Victoria Wood or Jasper Carrot wow. or, or French and Saunders or something with my mum who'd be watching. My mum always used to stay up and watch TV and my dad used to fall asleep. So that I, and, uh, and I used to watch comedy shows with my dad and then whenever I went to the video shop, when video shops, I mean, I was born before video shops. <laughs> so... I guess video shops started becoming a big thing in the mid to late 80s and I'd always rent comedies and stuff. I never thought about being a comedian. It always occurred to me that that was something that, um, that, was something that uh, other people did. Right. And, then, um, uh, and me and my sister always used to really love stand-up. We used to love uh, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. We used to watch the Mary Whitehouse Experience. Right. Um, you know, it was, it was always like a really, you know, that was when 
our parents' sort of sense of humour, you know, we developed our own sense of humour. And then I was really a big Jack D fan. My sister really liked his Eddie Izzard and Joe Brand. So we live, you know, we grew up with like basically Channel Four yeah, comedians yeah. in our in our house. Never, I never thought about being a comedian. I always used to think, fucking hell, uh, sorry. <laughs> How do they remember that much? How do they remember yeah, like yeah. a whole hour? So I used to do. I was in bands, and. Um, I used to do school plays and then I wrote theatre uh, and I wrote plays and I, I wrote poetry and music and I used to, you know, I guess I used to write sketches and stuff like that and I never thought about it. And then um, uh, I did university. I started taking stuff up to my, my. I mean, this is a bit long-winded, but I mean, I, I guess I never really, uh, not that I never intended to be a comedian I just I never I never thought it was something that just regular normal people like me <laughs> I never thought it was like a, a thing that just people could do I, I, and I, don't, I don't know who I thought those comedians were but I didn't think that they were real people you know or, or like normal people yeah. so I just I just never assumed that it was something you could do so I was writing um, I, I did very well um, so two things happened. One was that when I was 16, my drama teacher at school took us, uh, took, I think if you were sort of, I wasn't like a very popular kid at school um, and I wasn't into sports and stuff like that. And I think that if you were into sports, it was kind of maybe it was a little bit um easier because it, I mean football was part of the syllabus and uh, there was like after school activities uh, and you know you you kind of like grow up with football and it's passed down to you from your parents and I never had any of that um, so I was a bit lost at school right. and then our drama teacher took us to Edinburgh Festival. We did a school play. We did Romeo and Juliet, and we did it in the winter. And then it went all right. And because she was sort of like a drama teacher that was also exploring her own sort of um, ambitions through uh, drama, one of her ambitions was to. I think she was going up to Edinburgh anyway, and she just thought it would be a good like learning, you know, to do her own stuff. And she thought it'd be a good experience for us kids to sort of go to. So there's like, I guess it was everyone between year nine and sixth form went up for a couple of weeks to do Romeo and Juliet up in Edinburgh, which went fine. But, but when I got up there, I was just like, oh, I, I, I'll, this is all I want to do. We were all underage. Yeah. We were all about 16, but we just went to like pubs and watched comedy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I saw Al Murray up there. Wow. Um, it, like, and I, I went to see stuff at the Tron and Al Murray got me up on stage and I went to see stuff at the Tron and I really loved the Tron as a venue and I thought that was great yeah. and I remember the Tron was mentioned in, in Train Spotting, the yeah. book and so it was kind of like it was like this thing so there was there was um, there was that and then I started writing my own stuff when I was at uni and um, I did very well drama uh, drama in my A-levels and my drama teacher said you should take that 
I wrote a 10 minute play and they said, you know, you should take that up to Edinburgh. And I was just like, well, what are you meant to do with a 10 minute play? You know, you're not going to, you know. So I wrote another five 10 minute plays so, rather than expand 10 minutes. So yeah. I just wrote another five because, you know, it's a piece of piss, isn't it, writing a 10 minute play? So <laughs> I just did, I just, uh, do you know what I mean? I don't know what I was thinking because I spent so long on that one 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I ended up just writing another five and I was just like, okay, there you go. That's an hour. Um, and then um, and then I just did that. And then no one, I, I wrote plays and um, I spent a long time like writing plays, like five five years. I took a play up, used to work in pubs and used to work in uh, admin and do data entry and stuff uh, in the year and then take up plays and, uh, and stuff that I'd written throughout the year and I'd take it up to Edinburgh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's yeah. how I did it and then it was just so much work to sort of like you know organise um, a cast and uh, and rehearsals and um, it was like a tight little group of friends there's about four of us and it was just a lot of work to sort of like organise and then people got like lives and they started like branching off and then it was me and my friend Rob and um uh, and I'd I'd written a play that had taken I I think I started writing it when I was about seventeen and I ended up getting it getting a version of it together for Edinburgh in two thousand six and it got it got like so so I guess I'd been working on it for about nine years yeah, yeah. On, on and off and it got one star in uh, <laughs> in the Scotsman that's awful yeah but but um but then they phoned up and they said well it was a printing error and it should have been two. And fair enough. Wow. When you when you go online, it was a t- it was a two star review online, but it was a one star in the paper. But we sold out because it was a one star review, and everyone turned up, convinced it was going to be shit. And, it, and we it ended up winning. We we ended up winning over a bit. But there were songs in that that I'd written quite sincerely. That because they were so sincere, ended up being quite funny. People laughed at them, and <laughs> rather than get offended, I was just like, sure, maybe that's a <laughs> maybe that's deliberate yeah and um, and then uh, because I'd spent so long on this play and then it got nothing um, I, I I was sort of like a little bit lost I was in my mid 20s I'd done well at school I'd done well at uni uh, and then I was sort of like drifting along and I didn't really know what to do and I knew that plays were a lot of work mm. and I tried uh, I made a list of all of the things like write a book, be in a band, um, like be an astronaut. <laughs> Honest, I put you know, and everything that would <laughs> everything that would take longer than six months or whatever, I just crossed off the list. Yeah, and one of the last thing you know, or that involved the participation of other people. Yeah, like being in a band bit writing you know putting on a play you need other people to do that yeah, I wanted yeah. to do and writing a book is just you mm. but I didn't I didn't want to sit in a, I'd, sat, I'd spent five years sat in a room writing stuff I wanted to get out and do stuff and so I was just like stand up comedy and I honestly it never occurred to me that it was something that I could do um, and I did a one day course uh, called Pepperstock in um uh, Crouch End right and they you know taught you how to hold a microphone and 
told me to tell a story that I wouldn't tell my mum. And that, and and that was it. And they said, yeah, you could do that tonight. You know, there's a little group. I don't know if anyone else off that course really went on to do anything. Yeah. yeah. But um, but I, uh, but and then I did about six months later. I had a gig and I booked my gig in and I did it. And I was just like, oh right, this is what I want to do. And that is the long answer to. <laughs> It's fine. But you know what I mean? It's just yeah, like... Yeah, uh, yeah, it's great. Other than this blog, the most creative thing I ever did was write a play. I wrote... I've, I've, I've written a play called The Applicant, which we, me and my mate performed in 2003 for Comic Relief. We did three shows. We got over £2,000. And it's about... Uh, it's basically about me. It's called... Um, uh, uh, the applicant's about a bloke from Carlisle who never gets a job, comes down to London, can't get a job, has a very successful girlfriend who has a job. And um, by the end of it, uh, he gets his ideal job and he dies. So the, the, last, <laughs> the last scene is him at the gates of heaven or hell or wherever you, wherever you believe in. And he's being interviewed by God, and God says to him, um, "We think you're ideal to interview corpses, uh, to go to decide whether or not to send them to heaven or hell." And I shrug my shoulders after half an hour, and the lights go out. And and this went really good. It's based on um, uh, I got the idea from the film After Hours, the Martin Scorsese film. Cause oh he, yeah, yeah, with Griffin Dunn. Yeah, he never goes back to work. And so the point is, he would never ever get a job, no matter how hard he tried. And he kept getting better and better and better. And it was all about monologue. And so the first scene was him in the in the waiting room, and then he didn't have anybody to talk to, so he started talking to the audience. Now I wrote these great monologues to get the story going, and I ran out the first night I did it because he's late for his interview, and I completely forgot the monologue. <laughs> And I wrote the flaming thing, but it, it 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 certainly gave me the creativity to do the to do this blog. I never thought it would be as oh, successful as this. But, the, you know, but that uh, sounds but that sounds brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I had the idea to take it up to the Edinburgh Fringe. I never did. I want to re revise it and do it. You know. So we'll wait and see. But but it's amazing how small acorns make bigger things. Like you, with your comedian with, with your comedy. I th I th and I, I think uh, non directly as well because yeah. it's it's kind of like um, it wasn't so much. Uh, doing a school play that made me think I want to do this forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going up to Edinburgh, and that sort of like nightlife and that in environment, and um, and just all of the hot rooms uh, with with sweaty comedians yeah. and <laughs> and being like elbow to elbow with other audience members and yeah. laughing at something and not knowing what you're going into, and 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 that was what really kind of like was uh, sparked my. Um, uh, imagination off about about what I, I knew I wanted to go to Edinburgh before I knew I wanted to be a comedian right, you know? right, right. but like my plays my plays were a lot like uh, uh, your your play yeah. by the sounds of it yeah. mine were all about kind of like death and um, uh, philosophy yeah. and um, uh, and kind of like taking stuff like um 
characters like uh, the Grim Reaper or the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and kind of like making kind of like uh, comedies out of them and some of them were really dark and yeah. so I think it was just a really good uh, and also I, I wrote a lot of material that didn't end up going into anything right. that was sort of good practice for me so that when I started doing comedy and when and when I started doing TV people would say you know have you got any ideas and you'd be like yeah I've got loads of ideas because I've spent <laughs> 10 years writing right? ideas yeah. down <laughs> no, so so, when so it was you, all very lucky. When you were when you started your comedy journey, were you doing five minute spots in pubs with friends? Is that how you gained the experience of the specific comedy straight after your course? Um, well, so I did the course. I would say in about March. Right. I did Edinburgh in August, right. uh, which was the one star. Play yes, where yeah. I just I'm gonna I'm gonna give theatre a rest, not necessarily retire, but like give it a rest, and then so that was the August, and I think my first gig was something like uh, the September after that August, late September after that August. So what year is that? 2006. I wanted to do it while I was still 25. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, I turned 26 on the first of October. Right. So, so. Um, so that's that. But then, but then, so my very first gig was at Crouch End, mm. uh, downstairs at the King's Head. Know it well. Um, which is, I think, uh, it's got Peter Graham runs the gig, and uh, he's a lovely guy now. Yeah. But uh, when you don't know him, he's terrifying. <laughs> and it was like, but there are these hurdles that you've got to jump through before you even. Yeah before you even tell a joke you know and one of them was phone up peter graham and ask for a slot so i phoned up peter you know they said uh, they they gave me his number at the at the at the course it wasn't like an extensive course but it gave me enough confidence to like make a phone call and the first phone call was you know um you got a phone in between like 10 a.m and 11 a.m so I wasn't working at the time, so I had to set my alarm. <laughs> and um, and you phone up Peter Graham and you say, can I have a... Oh, what did I say? I said, uh, oh, I was very nervous. And I said, hello, I'd like to book a gig, please. And he just says, uh, well, I'm going to need to know your name. And I was like, fucking hell, I thought we were having a... Do you know what I mean? It's like, like what are you... Like, what was he... Are you meant to just, like, start all conversations with, hello, my name's Nick Helm, and I'd like to book a gig? It was just kind of like... So I thought it was a conversation, but it was sort of like, ah, God. So I was already... <laughs> I was already ready to hang up and run away and not bother. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and, I, and I did it. And then, you know, you had to wait, like, six months because there was a waiting list. Oh, so I, whenever it was March to uh september and then when i did the gig in september it went fine it was like i think it was like maybe it was seven minutes and it went it went absolutely fine yeah. there was some jokes in there that i kept forever yeah but the thing that happened after that was the people that ran the gig um were there and one of them said is that so how many gigs have you done that must have been like your fifth or sixth gig <laughs> And I was just like, fifth or sixth? God, 
no, it's my first. And they were like, that was very good for your first gig. And I was just like, wow, and look at that. It almost looks like it's my fifth gig. And now I've done like thousands of gigs and you yeah. just think, my fifth gig, I must have still been absolutely <laughs> appalling. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so, so, so there was that. But then also afterwards, somebody said, uh, some one of the other acts came up and they said, would you like a gig? And I was like, oh, Yes. And so for, after doing theatre yeah. for six years where you do a play, uh, it has a run, the play finishes, and then you have to think of a new idea and then do that. And no one had ever offered me another, you know, no one had ever said, hey, do you want to come and do your play yeah. over here? Or do you want to come and do your play over here? And, you know, that's not true. I, I did get one of my plays on in London, but that was from that was from an old friend who ran a theatre but like no no stranger had ever come up to me and said we love what you're doing yeah come and do it over here and my first ever gig doing stand-up comedy was like this guy came over and he said i love what you're doing come and do your your stuff at, at my club and i was just like wow i've instantly doubled the amount of gigs i've done just by and i thought that sort of community and that sort of um network of people where you're all like hungry and helping each other um uh because you can't do like a whole night of comedy by yourself you need like four other acts to do it you yeah know? yeah um and so so to have like that, that that group of people and to learn that on the very first gig i was just like that's brilliant and then the gig came along and it was absolute dog shit and there was only six acts uh, in the audience and then you know one by one you all get up out of the audience and do your bit and then sit back down again but it was um but i realized after my first gig that i was just like oh that's good i always sort of describe it as i felt lost and i was writing and i was doing stuff but i was working um i don't think there was any way i could have just kept writing theater and doing theater for the love of doing theater mm. And then I could have worked in an office for the rest of the year. Yeah. And I kind of guess I would have been happy at a certain, to a certain extent. But when I did comedy for the first time, it felt like there was like a missing piece to me. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'd found it and I was just like, okay, this is what I do. So, and so there must have been a point where you thought I can do, I'm good at doing this. I can do this well. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't really think about it like that. I, um, I like, so um, I've just got into. Um, I've just, this sounds like it's completely unrelated, and it, and it might be. It's fine. <laughs> but, but I've just got. I've just got into making uh, picture frames. Right. Um, so I buy. Uh, I I'm, I'm basically. Um, I love pictures. <laughs> I love film posters and yeah. film art, artwork, and I frame them all. And then I was buying some unusually shaped pieces of artwork that I couldn't just buy frames off Amazon. So I thought, I'm spending so much money on picture frames these days. Why don't I just teach myself how to make picture, picture frames? They can't be that hard. So I taught myself how, you know, I went online and I looked at some videos and then I bought the equipment and I bought the tool, the, the, the stuff mm. and, um, you know, the, the materials and stuff like that. And then I started making these picture frames and I made my first picture frame and it wasn't very good. Um, 
uh, and it, it was sort of like lopsided and uneven. So I broke it at the joints and recut it and then put it back together again. And then, um, and then it fit a lot better. And so, and then I took that first attempt and I stuck it on the wall, but I put it in like a shaded area on some stairs. So you can't really see it. Um, but it's like, it's my first attempt and it's up there. And, 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 uh, and I've sort of like, and, and so each time, and, and, and occasionally you will do like a perfect picture frame. Right. And like you'll have measured it just right and the artwork that you've got just slots right into it and it's ab it's like a perfect fit and you go that's amazing uh and then the next one will be slightly lopsided again and you can't notice to the naked eye when it's hung up but you know that it's not quite right and that and making picture frames is sort of like it's not a skill that you improve upon it's like um, you have to give each picture frame the same level of concentration and detail as the last. It's not like well, after you've learned the basics, it's not like, hey, I can do this in my sleep. Yeah. You still have to concentrate every time you do it. And I was teaching my, my friends because I put pictures of my picture. I put pictures of my picture frames up on uh, Instagram. And my friend, Henry, he said, how do you do that? I've I've got some weird stuff to print. And so yesterday I sat down with Henry and I took him step by step through how to do the picture frame. And I'd never taught anyone how to do it. So it was sort of, I was saying stuff out loud for the first time. And one of the things I was saying was, it's not about aiming for a perfect picture frame. Yeah. It's about trying to get each step perfect and if you get each step perfect then you'll end up with a perfect picture frame but you don't want to think of your fine you know you've got to cut each uh uh each piece of wood correctly yeah and you've got to cut the glass correctly and you've got to measure correctly and you've got to do each stage correctly and if you do each stage correctly you should end up with a good picture frame right but if you are racing ahead to get to your finished product, uh, you're not giving the process enough concentration, yeah. and um, and you can and you can you can fuck it up. It doesn't matter if it's your twentieth or your hundredth or anything like that. Um, that's, so that's that's fascinating because it reminded me you've just recently done the um, stand up to cancer thing with where you had to. Um, uh, um, uh, what's the word? You had to um, get a, get a get a celebrity mentor. mentor I had to mentor. That's what I'm trying to remember. Where 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 you had to mentor a comedian, and watching you watching your process in that was fascinating. Yeah, and I, I can't can see what you're saying with the analogy with the picture frame. I can't. Yeah, I can't. The, the, the point about the picture frame is that you have to enjoy the process yeah yeah because if you're just thinking about if you're just thinking about getting a perfect picture frame then you're going to miss out on a lot yeah. and if you if you if you're concentrating on getting each each you know bit of wood to the right length and you're getting it all perfect if you're concentrating on getting each stage perfect 
uh, then you're kind of like enjoying the process. And I think with comedy, I don't feel like there's ever been a moment where I've mastered it. Yeah. But I feel like... I disagree, like, but yeah. But I feel like it's like picture frames and sometimes you'll do a gig and you'll go, that was perfect. That yeah, that yeah. gig went as well as it could do. Um, and then, you know, with the material that I've got at this time in my life, at this moment, with this audience in this venue, this is a perfect picture frame. That's Whereas right. you can also have like some gigs that you're not as prepared for or... Yeah. Uh, you're tired or you've had an argument or a breakup or uh, your audience are too drunk yeah. or do you know what I mean? There's any, yeah. any number of any number things of factors can come into it. Yeah. And sometimes it will be perfect. And sometimes um, it, uh, it won't be. And it's not about judging yourself based on a perfect hit rate. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. I think it's about, appreciating the process and enjoying the process and and learning from like with like with picture frames you're learning from your mistakes you're going right yeah, yeah. um uh, you're feeling your way and you're like going all right i've measured the wrong bit there i'm doing this wrong and you're trying to sort of like learn and you're trying to remember every time that you redo another one from uh, it's not instinct you're trying to remember from the last time you did it yeah uh, what your mistakes were then, and and things will be variable. Things will change. And with comedy, I think it's I think it's very. I don't think it's like about going like finally. You, I mean, it's true. You are only as good as your last gig, really, and because because they're of the moment. Yeah, yeah. That's um, the, that's the live experience, though, isn't it? When you're in the room, you're of the moment, and that's yeah, what makes exactly. it magical. Whether and it's good um, or bad. And and you you last that gig will last as long as people's memories, mm, you know. Mm, mm. Um, uh, and so you kind of have to just sort of, um, yeah. I guess it's I guess that's maybe it's a bit philosophical, but um, no, it, no, it's it's it, it's a perfectly great analogy of of what you try and do, and and you've and you described it really well. I don't think I I don't think I've nailed it, but also with the. With the thing with uh, Saida, Baroness Saida Varsi, yeah. and teaching her how to do stand-up. It's one of those things where I've got to a stage in stand-up where it is the choices that I make on stage are sort of instinctive now, but you do have to try and... But in teaching someone else and showing someone else, it does reminds you that there was a time when it wasn't instinctive and there was a lot of work and there was a lot of work that go, went into working out what your voice was and who you were on stage right. and how long have I been doing stand-up now? 15, yeah, it'd be 15 years and yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so it's, it's, it's easy to forget that, you know, there was a lot of trial and error to get you to that that point so when you're actually teaching someone and their reputation is on the line because they're listening to what you say and they're going to get up on stage and say whatever it is that they're going to say you know then you're kind of like you you're sort of hyper aware of your process again which is yeah. weird because maybe you haven't even thought about it either you haven't thought about it in about 10 years or you haven't thought about it ever and it's just sort of been like this instinctive process so to convey it to someone else that's difficult as well 
Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it I don't a, feel it, like I've ever. It, it, it is a fascinating thing because um, I I um, went on a half day writing course to do my blog, and uh, I was invited to go on it, uh, and uh, I was with a load of people who wanted to be reviewers, and when the um, person came up to me that she said she said oh, oh we've forgotten why we've invited you and I said well um, I can tell you I'm not a reviewer I'm not a diarist I'm not a reporter I'm not a critique I'm a member of the audience and I'm out to have a good time and my blog hopefully will enthuse is an enthuse for all these people who actually get up and have a go at doing it and she never bothered me again <laughs> 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 and I thought I must be doing something right <laughs> let's move on to Edinburgh um, my holiday every year I've been going to the Edinburgh Fringe since 2005 and I see about 50 shows uh, in, a, in a week that I go there I'm very lucky to be able to go you have had many successful shows in Edinburgh over the years and in 2017 and 2019 you've had two very successful UK tours I've seen you many times live on stage, including a memorable first encounter and many more times that always be comedy and also on tour. How do you get your ideas for your shows, please? Um, so that's a different question from how do you get your ideas for your material? Mm. Um, yes. Well, my ideas for my shows, I guess, oh, I'm, I don't really put a lot of weight into any of that. I think right. that um, I like, so So, what I mean by that is I think that, uh, I think when you hang around with a lot of comedians, when you start out with a lot of comedians, there's a lot of noise and a lot of comedians are saying different things. And everyone's different. Everyone's got their own process. Yeah. And it's easy to sort of like get swept along and take someone else's process as your own and, and, and be kind of like, oh, that's how to do it. So I'll do it like that. And it might not work for you like that. Um, and I think everyone was always very sort of keen on um, making sure that they had a, like a really good, their first Edinburgh hour was going to be really good because they wanted to get nominated for their first Edinburgh hour. And I think I'd done Edinburgh before I did stand-up comedy. I'd done Edinburgh for, you know, I did my first stand-up Edinburgh in 2007 and I did my first Edinburgh in 1997. So I'd been going up to Edinburgh for, for 10 years before I started doing stand-up. Yeah. And I, and I, because I'd come in through theatre and then started doing stand-up, um, and I sort of stumbled on stand-up by accident, I guess I didn't really know it know much about it from a stand-up comedy point of view mm. so everyone put a lot of emphasis on doing their first hour and i always just thought as soon as you do your first hour you can do your second hour because i'd already got into the process of going up every year and i always thought that whatever you get wrong in your first hour you'll learn from and then you'll make you know new mistakes in your second hour third hour fourth hour so i always just thought that didn't really matter what your show was about it had to be about it just had to be something that was um loose enough that you could uh hang some material off right so um 
so uh, for instance uh, I was meant to be doing when I did my first one when I did my first hour it was not it was 2009 uh, and I was meant to do a um, three-hander with two other comedians from Brighton Um, I lived in London and they lived in Brighton and I was meant to you know do a show with them and um they dropped out at the last minute and I couldn't cancel the slot. Right. And I had like one day, I, I, I was with the Free Fringe, it was with Peter Buckley Hill and yeah, yeah. PBH and uh, I said, can I um, drop out because the other two people I'm doing the show with and he said, no. <laughs> and I was oh, like, fuck, yeah. fuck, <laughs> fucking hell. But I'd, already, I'd already written... <clears throat> if you'd left it to me, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have thought I was ready to do an hour. Right. Um, and uh, you know, and I would have put it off. Um, but because um, I just didn't think I had that much material. Uh, but then, and I was always struggling with five minutes, ten minutes. I think five minutes is the hardest. Mm, yeah. I think ten minutes is difficult. Um, I had never done an hour, and so. I, you know, went on uh, my laptop and I had all of like these files saved. One of them was missaved. Uh, I'd mistitled it and it was, instead of bad things happen in threes, which was a bit of material I had, it said bad things happen in trees. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I said, and I need to come up with a title for an Edinburgh show, like in five minutes. So I just said, I'll call it Bad Things Happen in Trees. That could be a poetry show. Yeah. And so I just put a load of poems and songs and stuff together. And then I, and then I was, went down to Brighton. Angela Barnes did um, a night down in Brighton called Funny Farm. Yeah. And I did my first hour down in Brighton. And it was the easiest thing I'd ever done. Like getting up and doing an hour was just incredibly easy. Wow. I mean, I'm... I'm I'm giving you very long answers, so you can see that I love, I, I can talk, um, and going on stage and doing an hour was brilliant. Doing five minutes was just like, how the fuck am I meant to do five minutes? I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know when, but with an hour, you had like, you know, textures, and it was like dark and shade, and you could, um, uh, you could not be funny for a section of the show and you could delay punch do you know what I mean it was like you had a lot more freedom with doing an hour and I loved it and um, and so then the next year I was like I'll do another show and I used to say keep hold of the gold on stage <laughs> and and someone said um, uh, I think yes yeah, so, uh, someone said you should just call your show keep hold of the gold and it hadn't even occurred to me and I was just like right I'll call it keep hold of the gold and then I just tried to make the show all about kind of like, you know, trying to be positive in the face yeah, yeah. of negativity. Yeah. I didn't have a passion to tell. I didn't have like a burning passion to write a show about positivity and no, keeping hold no. of the gold. I had a title for a show and then I wrote material to fit the title. And then the next year, um, I uh, had a girlfriend and uh, we'd just met and we went on holiday to New York together mm. and we went to see uh, The Nutcracker. It was around Christmas time. We went to see The Nutcracker in New York. Nice, romantic. And, 
It was very. Her parents were there as well. Um, it was, um, and it, uh, and there was a lot of stuff about dreams in there. Right. And then while we were there, we we ended up because it was like the holiday of a lifetime. I'd never had any money um, to, to go on holiday. Yeah. Uh, I, either I didn't. I was. I was. I was so poor. I didn't have any money. Or I'd started working. And I couldn't take the time off because I needed to work. Right. And so this was kind of like this holiday. And so while we were there, we ended up going down to Orlando. <laughs> and we were in the queue for, um, I can't remember what, right? Oh, it's the rock and roller coaster in, Orla in um, <laughs> uh, Universal Studios. And, uh, um, <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> and there was a queue and there was somebody that was wearing a... Um, they were in a Led Zeppelin T-shirt, and it was the T-shirt where uh, it was the it was the image of Icarus right. with the wing, with the wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and we'd seen we'd seen um, the Nutcracker, and then I'd seen this Led Zeppelin poster, and a friend of mine used to say "Dare to Dream" as like just like a catchphrase thing. And I just said, right, oh, I've done a show called Keep Hold of the Gold. And so I said, I'm going to call this show Dare to Dream, and it'll be about dreams, and I'll use elements of the nutcracker. I mean, this sounds wanky, but it was literally... <laughs> like, it was like in this holiday that I had around Christmas, there was about five things that all sort of slotted together, and then the poster was sort of like me with Icarus wings, and it was meant yeah. to be like the Led Zeppelin poster. Um, the title was Dare to Dream. I did the blurb. And then all of the material had to be about dreams because it has to be about something. You've got to write. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. I, I didn't have like this burning desire to write an hour about dreams. I just did. When I did and then I did a show called This Means War, which was kind of like, um, uh, I always saw that my shows were like a storyline. So Keep Hold of the Gold was me. Um, uh with relationship issues and then death dream was me with father issues mm. and this means war was me and my girlfriend and now we're uh we're going through a breakup mm. and mm. and then i did a show called one man megamyth literally mm. that was the year i did um f i did first series of live at electric i did the pilot for heavy entertainment i was about to do the pilot for uncle mm. i've done an hour on radio one i was the first comedian to do radio one since chris morris wow. and uh, i'd done all of these things and i was like well i'm not gonna do edinburgh this year and somebody said you have to do edinburgh and i did an old show in 2007 that involved an evil knievel costume so i literally <laughs> I literally had a title, which was One Man Megamyth, and I combined the title that I had floating around with the Evil Knievel costume, and then I, I, I had to put together the concept for that show in, like, hours. Mm, mm. And then I had to write the show. But it, I always think that it doesn't really matter what your show is about because you're going to write another show. Mm. So... Or I just think about what's the concept for this show? What are we selling mm. this time? We've done dreams, we've done war, we've done gold, and now this time we're doing um, evil Knievel and what it is to be, <laughs> uh, what it is to be a man, what yeah, it is to yeah, be a man. Yeah. And, 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 and then this last show, Phoenix from the Flames, yeah. um, that was a show that I really had to get off my chest yeah, that was yeah. really important to me. And either I've 
turn to the corner and that's how I write shows now. I have to sort of like uh, bleed for them or um, that was sort of like just something I had to get out of my system. It's, um, in, it's interesting because the, the two that particularly come to mind for me as uh, the hour-long shows were ma your masterwork show in 2017, which was just a fantastic number of ideas, an incredible amount of ideas that you put into the one hour. And then my f my favourite encounter with you was was um, I was determined to come and see Phoenix from the Flames in 2019 because I couldn't <laughs> get in to the Edinburgh Fringe. And the nearest place to me, which I'd never been to and I've nothing against, was Aldershot. And I spent, it must have been three hours walking around Aldershot in the rain with nothing to do. And yeah. there you were, outside Weatherspoons, uh, amazed that I'd come up to see you. And the show was so tightly knit when I went in. It was, And it was perfect because you took a very... Um, not difficult subject, but very um, da daring, I suppose, subject. Uh, and and you tried to open it up to the masses and it worked brilliantly because it was a mixture of how I believe you felt and, try and wanted to get your points across as well as with the comedy. Um, you had various elements in there. And I absolutely loved it. I, 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 I easily think uh, it's one of the best things you've done. And I was so pleased to see it streamed because it, it deserved to, to be looked at the masses. And then afterwards, after that night, um, seeing you in the Weatherspoons, I couldn't believe that. And we, had, we had a conversation like this. It, 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 it was a terrific night. So thank you very much. That's all I wanted to say on that. Well, what I'd say about that was that, just, just to clarify, um, I was staying at the Weatherspoons. It was a hotel <laughs> as well. Yes. So all, 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 of my, all, all of my stuff was there. Yeah. Right? All, all of my stuff was there. But also, as I was leaving the Weatherspoons to go to the gig, I bumped into you in the street. That's right. And I had to ask you directions on how to get to the venue. <laughs> yeah, that was I thought, this is going to be great. <laughs> I, I'd only been there for two hours. <laughs> Thankfully, it was just up the road. <laughs> but, um, that, yeah, that gig, that gig was great. And yeah. the, the tour was great. And I'm really, yeah, like... Like, I think that that is like the perfect balance. Yes, yeah. Of um, of having something to say. Yeah. But also being aware that it is a comedy show. Yeah. And and I th I I I kind of you know it's all trial and error, mm. and mm. and and you can have in your head what you want a show to be like, and when you finish it, you're kind of like, well, I didn't mean like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, or this bit's not very funny, or or whatever. But with that show, I thought it was like a, um, and I might do shows differently in the future or, or whatever. Yeah. But for this specific show, I thought it's a perfect um, sort of like balance for me of talking about something that's very important and serious to me, yeah. but also being hyper aware there is a bit of stand up comedy and making it funny and sure. accessible to an audience. And I thought the mixture, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that it's meant to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, or that this is the serious bit. And now this is the funny bit. And I think to make it's, 
I, I was, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd ever be able to do it again, but I think that it, the but show you, did very well. But you made that seamless, you see. You didn't, that, it did not come across as this bit serious, this bit isn't. You you had your points to say, which you got across brilliantly, and yeah. were intertwined with, with the, with the stand-up comedy. It was great. It was really yeah. great. I mean, I'm very hard on myself. If I do something that's not good or that I'm not happy with, you know, I'm I'm, I'm very hard on myself. And if you're going to be hard on yourself, then you have to sort of acknowledge sure. the good stuff. Yeah. And I and I do think that the balance between serious, I I didn't feel like there was kind of like huge gear changes. Yeah. I felt like it was an enjoyable show that sort of crept up on you. Um, and I was really yeah, I was really proud of that. Yeah. What I what I also love about your shows is that uh, I think you're a brilliant rock musician and regularly perform with your band and part of your tours. Um, I've got your CD here. Nick Helm is there's a plug. Can anybody fucking see amazing. that? Nick Helm is fucking amazing. Highly recommended and hot and heavy are both brilliant CDs. Do you prefer writing music to stand up comedy? It's like, um, well, they're totally different. Right. Um, and uh, I find writing music very difficult at the moment. Right. Uh, but sometimes you'll have an idea for a song and you can like write it in five minutes and sometimes you'll have an idea for a song. I've, I've got demos that I'm re-listening to from maybe five, six years ago right. that I still haven't finished where you kind of go, well, what if it was a bit like... Yeah, and, and and when you're writing an album, it's kind of like if the song isn't finished and everything else is waiting for it, then you swap it out and you put something else in its place. And then, so I've got rollover songs that have not made it into. Oh God, like the like the previous few. Oh, well, um, what's the song on this one? Keep on, keep on fucking trucking from yes, Phoenix yeah, Rains. Yeah, that was that was originally um i hadn't i didn't have a closing song for phoenix from the flames um this is an exclusive because i've just remembered <laughs> thank you very uh, much <laughs> i didn't i didn't i didn't have a closing song for phoenix from the flames right and i was giving someone some advice and i said to them well you just got to keep on fucking trucking and then i thought that's the title for a song <laughs> yes of course <laughs> and um uh and so um so i wrote that down and then i wrote the lyrics that were fairly quick and i sort of had the tune in my head um but i didn't have enough time to put together a click tr to, to put together a demo i didn't have enough time to go to uh my recording studio my, my friend's recording studio down in deptford who i work with the producer andy who did all the music from Uncle Andy Jones, and um, I didn't have enough time to put a demo together with him so that I had a track that I could take up to Edinburgh, to all this other stuff. And then I remember that in 2012, I'd written a song called uh, My Purple Heart, which was for the show This Means War. Um and all of the songs had to be like war analogies, but also about uh, romance and stuff. And uh, so I had a song called Purple Heart and um, it just wasn't a very good, it, it was an all right song, but it was a little bit of, it just, uh, the audience had to be do a bit too much work. Right. Um, 
so I never used it but I had a really good um, demo of it so I just took the vocals off the demo and the new song that I wrote fit on that backing track and so that was like a rollover song that yeah, I yeah. never that I never used that when I did Phoenix from the Flames I'd written this song for Phoenix from the Flames that I and and out of necessity I needed to use some music that I already had and it all fit perfectly and now it's kind of like I forgot that Keep on fucking trucking started off as a totally different song. Um, so I, I, I love I love writing songs. I love sitting in a recording studio and sitting with Andy. I'm like a backseat driver, and Andy will be producing, and I'll say, "Now make that a bit louder and put some more claps in here." And and you know, and when you're f- completely satisfied and finished and happy with the song, yeah you know, and you're happy, then you release it to the general public and they can like it, they can not like it, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, it's obviously matters on some level, but the bottom line is that you've got it the way that you want it to be without, it's a very pure artistic expression because you're, it's like, this is what I want it to be. Um, It's perfect and uh and, and and now it's yours right now it's the audiences whereas with comedy it's a hundred percent uh in, inspired and uh contorted and you know um uh it's it's like a conversation you know yeah, yeah. where where a song will be written there's verses there's mid lates there's bridges, there's choruses, you know, there's like a format, you know, you know, there's a structure to writing a song, whereas, and, and you can sit down, you can do that, and when you've got all the words, and they rhyme, and they're all, or not always, but, and it's all there in a row, then you write the music for it, and then you do it, right? But with comedy, I'll go up on stage with no notes, or a couple of notes, and I'll talk in front of the audience, for 20 minutes and some of it will work and some of it won't work and the stuff that works I'll try and remember for next time and I'll write down as a note like I write bin bags and I'll do 10 minutes on bin bags but it'll never have been like written out Uh, and you only know it's going to be funny uh, if the audience say it's funny and if the audience don't find it funny you just don't do it again it's not really personal it's just kind of like um it's just kind of like i've got an idea for something that i think is funny you try it it doesn't doesn't work then you try something else but with songs it's kind of like like they're 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 totally different it's kind of like songs are very very personal you want people to laugh you can change lyrics and stuff but you've got complete control over a song uh, whereas comedy is more like uh, collaborative. Sure, yeah. Um, you've also appeared on TV and radio many times, including the successful sitcom Uncle that you mentioned before, and also The Reluctant Landlord for Sky, and also Loaded, which I loved you in. I thought you were brilliant in for Channel 4. Mm-hmm. Um, again, describe the differences in your approach to acting as opposed to stand-up comedy. Are they t- they'll be two different things again, are they? Mm. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I started off 
I started off wanting to act yeah. when I was at school. Um, and I was terrible at um, auditions. And I've got a very bad memory for lines, song lyrics, ridiculously. I, I can't remember hardly any lyrics from it, songs that I've written. Um, so, you know, it's very stressful. I mean, I find that the most stressful thing about getting up on stage is remembering uh, lyrics to right. stuff. And so, so I always wanted to act, but I was terrible at auditions and I was terrible at remembering stuff. So that's when I started writing. And I thought, if I can write myself stuff, then I don't have to audition. Um, and uh, all three of those projects um, are just, uh, it's, it's weird. All three of those projects were in incredibly different from each other. Um, Uncle was, um, Uncle was like very, very lucky to get Uncle. Uncle was a series of um, good fortunes and coincidences that led to me being offered the main part in that. Mm. Um, excuse me, I'm just drinking Pepsi Max cherry. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so what happened with Uncle was um, in 2012, I did a show called, no, 2011, I did a show called Death Dream, and Henry Normal, who uh, was one of the co-founders of Baby Cow, yeah which is Steve Coogan's production company and Henry Normal wrote, you know, the Royal family with uh, Caroline Hearn and mm -hmm. um, he's basically a living legend, but he started off as a poet. Yeah. Um, and I do a lot of poetry and he came to see Dead Dream. He sat on the front row uh, and I remembered him from all of like the DVD extras on all of Steve Coogan's DVDs. And sure. um, I'm, pro I, you know, at the time, I'm not sure how many people were aware of what Henry Normal looked like. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I knew what he looked like, and he was sat on the fucking front row. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I came, and he liked it. And then Channel Four said, "Who, you know, uh, you can do the, offered me these blaps, which are like five minute online things." Yeah. And they said, "Who do you want to work with?" And I said, "I'd like to work with Baby Cow because it's Steve Steve Coogan's my hero. Yeah, um, one of my heroes." And I love like everything that they do basically at the time. This is back in 2012, yeah. 2000, 2011. And I and I and I just grown up watching Steve Coogan and I was just like, um, yeah, I'd like to work with Baby Cow. So I did the blaps with Baby Cow, um, with Channel Four, and then uh Baby Cow got a script in uh for a pilot and they sent it to me and I read it and I liked it. And I went in for a meeting with Henry Normal and um, Ollie Refson, who wrote it. Yeah. And um, they said, uh, do you two get on with it? Do you two like each other? <laughs> and we were sat next <laughs> to each other. And I was like, yeah. And we went out and we, t we had a little talk about tone. So we had a little talk, me and Ollie... We had a little because the script was good, but it's just kind of like um, you could take that script and you can make an Adam Sandler comedy out of it, yeah. or you could take that script and you can make sort of a Royal Tenenbaums out of it. Yes, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I just was like, well, what's the tone? And uh, he, we started talking about Royal Tenenbaums and Wes Anderson and uh, Harold and Maud and stuff like that. And I was just like, yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing that I'm interested in. Um, nothing against Adam Sandler comedies, but, you know, a lot of them are awful. So, um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It was just kind of like, I want it to be, I wanted it to have, I wanted it to have like the balance between uh, sweet, yeah. dramatic, yeah. Uh, life-affirming stuff and being funny. Mm. And it could have just been really crude and broad and... Um, and you know, there's a time and a place for that, but this was a special project, and I was just like, I want to make sure. And we agreed on everything, and so Henry just said, "There you go, you got the part." And I did it for Channel Four. Channel Four turned it down as a series, and then Shane Allen, who was head of Channel Four comedy, moved over to BBC, yeah. and he took Uncle with it, and then we did it on BBC, and it was great. It was like a family. I was I was there for right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, I think it had been around for a bit and I think that I was one of the reasons it got made because I was hot shit at the time. And um, well, it was superb, innit? It It was such a wonderful performance that you gave. Well, it was sort of like I just, I'd done a, some student films and I just remember that I'd acted so big in them that they were just awful. So I just tried to do as little as possible <laughs> and, and just remember that there's a camera that's... It seemed to that, work. <laughs> camera, the camera's, camera's doing most of the work for you. Yeah, so you just yeah. like, and Daisy was really kind of like encouraging yeah. uh, on the first project that we did. And so, and, and when we quickly all became like a very tight little family, I obviously love Elliot and we got on very well. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that, and that was that. Whereas uh, Loaded was something that um, was away from my TV family where I felt very by the third series of Uncle I just felt very relaxed and I felt like I belonged there and you know we were I, I knew what my role on set was you know obviously I knew what my character was but I also knew that my role on set Ollie's very sort of shy and retiring um, and you know he's just concentrating on directing and, yeah. and, and getting the script and so you know, I would sort of like, I remember I did a pilot with, I don't think it ever got aired with Tom Davis. And he was just really great with all of the crew and all of the other cast. And he learned everyone's names yeah. and went around and it was a real pleasure to be around. I was in his project. Yeah. And I learned a lot from just watching how he was with the crew. And then when we did the third series, I felt really at home. Whereas with Loaded, I had to audition for that. Right. And it was a long audition process. Everybody wanted to be unloaded at the time. All of the actors of a certain age uh, all wanted to be in it. Right. And all of the comedians were going up for parts. And I had to audition for that. And that was very stressful. But also it, I felt very proud to have got that part because... Um, I had to work for it, you know. Yeah, Henry yeah. gave me the part because of because he saw something in me, and then after that, I had to I had to get the part for Loaded, um, uh, and so then there was that. And then with the Reluctant Landlord, that was totally different again. Yeah. Whereas, um, you know, uh, Uncle happened fairly once it once the gears were in motion. That happened fairly, you know quickly yeah. uh, loaded took a while because of all of the auditions sure. and then um 
with Reluctant Landlord, I was in the edit for, I did a short film called The Killing Machine about boxing. Oh, yeah. And I was, was literally in the edit for that. We were doing the colour grade on that. And I got a phone call from Ramesh. And he said, please say you'll do it. <laughs> and I'll say, and I was just like, do what? <laughs> and um, and then I looked at my messages and I had all these messages and they had the main the, the guy that was playing my part Lemon yeah had dropped out like right like two days before they were going to film right and they didn't have a part for it and I hadn't even read the script I didn't even know my character was called Lemon <laughs> Ramesh just said will you do it and I was just like I'm in the middle of something <laughs> so they sent a car I think we got we, I signed the contract and everything like that this happened like Thursday night I signed the contract yeah or maybe Thursday they asked me Friday I was finished the grade on my film that I'd made they got in a car drove to Shepparton or I think it was Shepparton. They did a costume fitting. I met all of the cast and the crew. We did like a photo shoot. And then on the Monday, we started filming. And, um, wow. and uh, they, they, were, they were like, have you got any questions? So I was like, yeah, what's my character called? You know, it was like, but Romesh asked me to do it. And I was just like, absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But so those, those, Wow. Three projects yeah. were just like completely different from each other. Uh, again, I, uh, um, you know, I, str I struggle with I struggle with um, with lines and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. Um, ever, I had a really nice had a really nice yeah. time on it. I'd like to do more acting. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. I think you should because you're very good at doing it. Um, and I'm and I'm so with you with Steve Coogan. He's one of my heroes as well. I I, I went to see him. I, I went to see his show, The Man Who Thinks He's It. Uh, yeah, for a birthday present for my brother, and we went on press night, and it was when the royal family was begin was just coming on to BBC One, right. and uh, we both say, and have you seen this? It's like any family, it's like mum and dad in Carlisle, and as we walked in to the bar, there was um, Ricky Tomlinson. And we, we just went, oh, hello, we think you're the funniest thing on television. And he said, well, Caroline's over here. And this little timid thing sitting in the corner, God bless her. And we went to it and she said hello. And it was just amazing. And then Steve yeah. Coogan, his characterization was just superb. And, I, th and I, th I think the, the man who thinks he's it, I mean, the, I, yeah. like... I've grew up watching Jack D, and yeah, yeah. You know, so there are other stand-up comedians. But I think yeah. the man who thinks he's it is probably the most influential yeah. comedy show I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I just think it's 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 one of the best comedy shows. It's the oh, best yeah. comedy show yeah. I've ever. It's I so wore, well done. Yeah. I, that that VHS copy of it that I had, I sort of I I watched it till it it didn't work anymore. And all the it, all the comedians you said at the start, I've seen all of them live as well. I've got so many memories, and and of course that's why the blog works. Um, it's been such a joy talking to you. We've we've run over the hour, unfortunately. But um, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, before we go, are you doing any more writing? Are, have you got any gigs coming up? Where can people find you on social media? You were just beginning to look at gigs again. Um, I've got uh, an album that's three quarters finished that I just need to finish off. Well, 
Uh, I've got, I've got. I think he stinks. Soundtrack album that I need to finish off. It's like loads of stuff, um, but I don't know. I've just, I'm, I'm writing. I'm playing it by ear. We will, we will see. Um, yes. Just well, I, I, I for one, am going to be in the front of the queue coming to see <laughs> you live again very soon because you're one of the funniest, honestly, funniest comedians I've ever seen. You've made me laugh so much over the years, and I just want to thank you for that. Oh well, um, thank a thank you for saying that, and b uh, thank you for uh, all your support and writing your blog. And um, I think that you know we don't we we com comedians can't exist without um, people to watch and laugh at us. And I think that um, yeah, you're you're doing a really good job. I think it's a really good job of um, uh, keeping an archive of all of the acts yeah. that are performing not just now but within your lifetime i think it's great and um, exactly. so thank you yeah, thank you for doing that all the best my friend it's been a delight you take care and i'll see you, you very too. soon thank you very much all the best